You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. pray. Our great, holy, eternal, unchanging, almighty, powerful God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Lord, it's good to be in your presence. It's good to sing your praises. It's good to be with your people. Thank you that we have your word, your clear, authoritative word that we might come and hear from you. You're not a quiet God. You've spoken. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would bring your word to bear on our hearts. God, I pray that you would stir in us an awakening, a Perhaps some need a sense of revival this morning. Perhaps there are hard hearts here this morning that you need to break that. Perhaps there are some given over to sin. Lord, and you call to them that you might rescue them. Perhaps there are some who are down and can't really figure out why you call to them to have joy in you to lift them up Lord you do all these things and more in us by your word by your spirit and I ask that you would do them Lord help me to be faithful to your text help me to seek to please you and not men we want to all please you together and may our time now be a ongoing offering of our worship to you. Lord, we love you, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are finishing out a series we've been in for a few weeks now on uh, looking at this theme of in Christ. And the point of the series has been this, that the point of oftentimes the New Testament seems to be that the Christian life is all about the fact that we are in Christ, that God the Father has placed us in Christ, has done all kinds of things for us in Christ. Even as we read last week in different places in Ephesians, we are literally now, if you are a believer in Christ this morning, seated with him in the heavenly places. God has done Wonderful things for us in Christ. And outside of Christ, we have nothing. We have no blessing. We have no hope. We have nothing. But in Christ, we have everything. And that is what the text of the scriptures point us to. And that's where we've been. We've been in Galatians 2 and understood the fact that 
through faith in Christ, we've died to the law. Righteousness for us does not come through law keeping. It comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ. We're declared righteous through faith in Christ. We've been in Romans 6 and understood that through faith in Christ, we're dead to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We're called to not let sin reign over us. Christ is our King and Lord. We've died to death with Christ as well. Tomorrow night, I'll do a funeral for a family member, and I can stand and talk about hope in the face of death. Because Jesus has given us that hope. That we can look to death and not be afraid. In Christ, we, he has conquered death. We looked at the fact that in Christ, in Colossians 2, we are to live. We're to walk in him. Our entire lives are to be completely given over to him. Walking in as he walked. Walking in the truth. Walking in the spirit. Such that this life that we've been given, as Paul says, to live as Christ. This life that we have been given that we would give it back to him, that we would walk in him. And now we've been in Ephesians last week and then this morning, understanding, really sort of taking the camera and panning back a bit to see what the Lord has done. And not only our individual lives, but he's brought us together in Christ, such that it's not as if just you and you and you and me are all just separated waiting for Jesus. No, he's done something and that he's brought us us all together, that for eternity we are together in Christ. We're even now together in Christ. If you are a new creation, whether you like it or not, you're with me in Christ. And that's a wonderful thing that the Lord has done. And as we walk through this passage, uh, we started out last week, verses 3 through 14 of Uh, Ephesians 1, if you recall, it's all one big long sentence in the original manuscript as Paul had it written to the Ephesians. It's all one big long sentence. Praising the Lord, it's how he begins his letter to the Ephesian church, writing to believers there in Ephesus how he might encourage them. His mouth, his heart can't help but overflow in praise and adoration to God. And he's walking us through all these things. And last week we we talked about all kinds of deep, wonderful things here in verses 3 through 8. God is the Father is blessed because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have everything, and spiritually speaking, in Christ that we could possibly need. We're not lacking anything. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. That is true. We found out that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The Lord, the the Father, has sovereignly chosen us before creation. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He's called us to be his people. We receive him, as Paul talks about in Colossians 2. We believe through an act of faith. We believe on him. He saves us, and we are then called to be holy and blameless before him in love because he's holy and he's blameless. Therefore, we're to be like him because we're in Christ. He predestined us for adoption as sons. We were orphans because of sin, because of our rebellion. 
And he brought us lovingly into his family, sat us at his table, treated us as his son, such that we are in his son. We said last week, he's not in the business of unadopting. We'll never see the door where the father says, it's time for you to leave. No, we're always in the father's house if we're in Christ. And all of this, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace, verse 6, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We found that his grace, he has lavished upon uh, us. Look at the redemption that Jesus has given us through his blood. We just sang about the cross. That is our only hope, the redemption that we have. We have no other redemption. There is no other redemption. There is no other redeeming yourself or, or redeeming ourselves through any other thing or uh, ability or activity or thought. Only through Christ and through his blood shed on the cross. We receive forgiveness of our trespasses. We're sinners. Do you know that? <laughs> The Father looks at us and forgives us in Christ. Cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Sees Christ when he looks at us, if we're in Christ. He did this in all wisdom and insight. The Father is perfectly wise and perfectly thoughtful as he does all of this upon us. And now we pick up in verse 9. But you know... Before I get to verse 9, what we're seeing in verses 3 through 14, as I mentioned, I I believe, a bit last week, we see specific attention given to the Father. We see specific attention given to the Son. We'll see this morning specific attention given to the Spirit. If I could summarize verses 3 through 14 for you in one little sentence, God the Father is bringing all his people together in Christ by his Spirit. That's what he's doing. And we're led into that. We're seeing that. This is the glory. This is the Christian life. This is Christianity. God the Father loves you. And he's bringing all his people together in Christ by his spirit. That's what God's doing. What's God doing? What's what's God been up to? Where's God? What's he doing? This is what he's doing. He loves you. And he's bringing all his people together in Christ by his spirit. That's what God's doing. Meanwhile, upholding all of the universe by his word in his spare time. And as we read the news, as we understand all of that's going on right now, you may have seen the two young folks that um, either took their lives or one took the other's life in Northwest in Canal Fulton there. Many of us, as we read it, we can't help but have... We should have broken hearts. We should feel a burden. We should feel just a, a, a sorrow because these people don't know the hope of Christ, clearly. And they need it. What's the solution? What are we to do? Our minds should not go, let's, let's think about what politically we can do. Let's think about what other kinds of things that we can do. Let's think about what does Oprah have to say? Who cares? This is it. This is the hope that we have. We have it. I hope you do. 
This is the solution. It's not a mystery. This is what God has done. This is the God that has created them, that we might point to them and say, this is what your heavenly Father is doing. He loves you, and he's bringing all of his people together in Christ by his Spirit. Look to him. There's no confusion. God is not the author of confusion. He's not sitting back going, what are we going to do? He's saying, this is what I'm doing. Do you understand that? Share it. Live like you believe it. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The Father has made known his once hidden will to his people. This will was in accordance with his good pleasure, and it was brought about in Christ. Making known. This is something that God has already done. God has made known, and we'll find out through this time here, our time this morning, Lord willing, what that is. But God has already done this. He has made known to believers the mystery of his will. In this sense, there is no Mystery. Now we can get to a point and we can see, boy, I, I don't know this, and I don't know how that works, and I don't understand the depths of that. Of course, and we talked about that last week, that we come to a certain point with God himself, with what he has revealed. He has revealed just enough for us and what he saw fit to tell his people. But past that, he's God and we're not. And how dare we try to think that we can fully understand all that God is? Because we're not God. So we can't. But he has simply, clearly given us His will. He's made known to us the mystery of His will. As I said, this mystery is not a mystery. Ephesians 3 9 tells us that Paul's part of Paul's calling as an apostle was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Part of Paul's calling as an apostle was to make this mystery known. Because it's not a mystery anymore. This is what God has done. And Paul himself, this was revealed to him, and uh, as he says, it was revealed to him by the Lord in Ephesians 3.3. 3. This mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Paul heard it from the Lord himself. Going over to Ephesians 6, I'm just going to, we're going to go on another little bunny trail here, chasing mystery, okay? Ephesians 6, and verse 19. Paul connects the mystery, this mystery with the gospel. So we're starting to understand what this mystery is. Also for me, that words may be given to me, he's asking for prayer, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, we might stop there and say, oh, okay, well, the mystery is, mystery is the gospel. Yes, but if we just, again, and we're going to, continue to chase this word mystery, we see that the gospel, is, there's so much to it, and Paul rounds it out for us in so many different ways as he talks about it in various letters. And I'm going to ask you to turn over with me to Colossians now. While you're turning there, you know, I'll just mention this last text in Ephesians. If you've been to a wedding, 
you've heard someone read Ephesians 5. And Paul in it talks about Christ and the church. And he says, this mystery, verse 32, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is saying that the mystery, this mystery, is displayed in marriage. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. You might say, well, my marriage doesn't feel like a picture of the gospel sometimes. But the gospel is what? Grace, forgiveness, mercy. Christ laying down his life for his bride, men, husbands. The bride submitting out of love to her husband. Grace and forgiveness all intertwined in that. That's the gospel. That's why our marriages can be a wonderful picture of this mystery. Colossians chapter 1. And verse 26. He says, This mystery was hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed to his saints. Oh, it's not just revealed to Paul. It's revealed to his saints. To all God's people. It's not as if Paul just has it. He's walking around saying, I have the mystery. You don't. Nope. It's revealed to all God's saints. He goes on, verse 27. To them God chose to make known among Uh, or excuse me, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ah, now we're getting another piece of this. Yes, it's the gospel, but what's he say? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We've been talking about being in Christ, but we certainly know that Christ is in us, right? Both of those things are true. You're in Christ if you're a believer in him this morning, but he's in you. There's a mutual spiritual relationship that happens that the Spirit brings about. Chapter 2 of Colossians here. He wants the church in Colossae and in Laodicea that their, this is what he wants, that their hearts, verse 2, may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Do you want to understand all uh, the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery? It's Christ. See how we could limit it if we just said the gospel. It's Christ, Paul says. There's all kinds of facets to this mystery. It's not just, we don't just say, well, it's the fact that it's the gospel. That's true, but there's more, isn't there? It's Christ, he says. Un- coming to a place where you have full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery is knowing Christ. In chapter 4. As he is closing this letter to the Colossian church, he says in verse 3, Asking for prayer. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to what? To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Paul is praying for open doors for him to be able to share this mystery. Such that this mystery is not something that we keep to ourselves. Yes, Paul's an apostle. Does that mean that only Paul is the one who's supposed to share it? No. <laughs> He's praying for open doors. He's asking that church to pray. What's he say? Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word. There's other people with him that aren't apostles. They weren't called to that specific purpose to be an apostle. 
But he's praying the doors would be open for all of them, everybody that's with Paul. Even while he's in prison. Nothing stops Paul from wanting to share the mystery. It's a mystery not meant to be kept to ourselves. Because God doesn't keep it to himself. Ephesians 1, he's made known to us. Verse 9, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose. Well, what is the mystery in Ephesians 1? Well, don't fall asleep in the next 45 minutes and you'll hear it. He's made known to us, Ephesians 1, verse 9, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. It's deliberate. God isn't haphazard. He isn't accidental. He isn't, well, I guess I'll do it now. No, everything is planned, deliberate, and exact. According to his purpose, which he what? Set forth in Christ. The Father's will is done by the Son. The Father's will is done by Christ. He set his, this purpose forth in Christ. We know that Christ is part of that mystery. And it's Christ who sets forth his purpose to make known that mystery. These are wonderful things. Verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. This once hidden will culminated in a plan for just the right time when the Father would unite all things in all of existence in Christ. Did you know that God has a plan? You might say, well, does he have a plan for my life? Yes, he does. But you know what God's plan is for your life? Its primary goal is not so much about what you're going to do, but who you're going to be. I mentioned it before, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 God's will for you is your sanctification. As we flutter about trying to understand, what does God want me to do? What's he calling me to? He's calling you to holiness. He'll work out the rest for you through providence and through other counselors, wise counselors in your life. Opportunities, abilities, desires that he might put on you. But his primary goal, his primary purpose for you, God's plan for your life is that you might be holy in Christ. That's God's plan. His plan is that you might be his holy child. This is a plan. A plan for the fullness of time. So it makes us think perhaps of Galatians. You can turn over there with me if you'd like. Galatians 4. I'm just going to read a few verses from that. Galatians 4. And Paul uses a similar phrase here. In fact, the exact same phrase. Fullness of time. And Paul is in the middle of a deep understanding and discussion here of of the law, the purpose of the law. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Galatians. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, that he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul just made an argument earlier in Galatians 3 that the law was like a guardian pointing them until it was the right time when Christ came. Okay? 
Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Remember, elementary principles of the world are the sense of natural forces, natural things. Paul says we were enslaved to them. We lived that way when we did not know God, when we were children. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. Same thing. Wow. He says the same thing to the Ephesian church as the Galatian church. The fullness of time had come. God decides when the fullness of time had come. Why does he wait so long for Jesus to come? Fullness of time hadn't come yet. When it did, it's time. God has a plan, a plan for the fullness of time. What is his plan? Back in Ephesians 1, verse 10. What is his plan? To unite all things in him, that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, we have to remember what we already know about And that's a really good principle to live by when we read the Bible. Remember what you already know as you're reading things. Because sometimes we might go, well, Paul, what does that mean? Well, remember what you already know. To unite all things in him. Now, those things, all things, all things. So my shoe, uh, my car, my house, is that what it it means? All, All things. Not very concerned about my shoe, I'm sure. All things. Everything that Christ has redeemed by the appointment of the Father will be united in Christ. Every person who has received Christ Jesus as Lord will be brought together in Christ. All things, though, but what's he say? All things in heaven and things on earth. Colossians 1 Verses 19 and 20 says this, For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, that's helpful. My shoe was not redeemed by the blood of his cross. Neither was your dog. Sorry. Or your trees in your yard. That helps us. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Everything that was redeemed by Christ's work will be brought together in Christ. That's God's plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything will be brought together, gathered up, culminated in Christ. For all eternity. That's his plan. That's the mystery of his will. Now you say, well, where's the gospel in that? That is the gospel. That's the bigger intent of what God is doing. That's what he's up to. Don't just limit it to our little lives. This is what God is doing in all of his godness. (laughs) He's uniting all things in Christ. We'll come back to a text in Romans 8 here as we close this morning that will help bring some more light to that.
But he's done it, notice, we're back in Ephesians 1. He's done it, notice, in Christ. In him. This is the mystery of God's will. Everything redeemed by God will be brought together, gathered up together in Christ. And every part of this, as we've walked through, if you just spent some, a, a moment and, and looked at the words that are in verses 9 and 10, you'd see his will, his purpose, or his good pleasure, a plan. All of these things are things that God has done through careful, deliberate planning and purpose. God is not haphazard. He's not, he's not quick-tempered. He's not jumping at this and jumping at that. God is careful, deliberate. Do you ever know a person like that? Maybe not like God <laughs> to that degree. But you know a person who's just so calm and so careful and calculated and deliberate who's not really all that rash and doesn't go off the handle on things and doesn't jump here and there and everywhere. God's even better than that in everything that he does. He's always careful and deliberate. Furthermore, God is not following some plan outside of himself. God never says, what's the plan? His will is just that. It's his will. He's doing what... He has willed what he has purposed, what he has planned. We make plans. Sometimes people make plans for us, right? Our plans get changed and thwarted. God's plans never get changed and thwarted. God's will and his purpose never gets changed and thwarted. What he plans, what he wills, what he purposes happens. Just like when he speaks, his speaking is doing. That doesn't happen for us. When I tell my daughter to do something, 50-50 chance she might do that. You know that as parents, right? But when God says light, universe, tree, water, it's all happening. Every time God says something, it happens. He's not just like, it would be nice if there was water. Ah, there we go. No, he just says water, and there's water. Same thing with his plan, his will, his purpose. He takes great pleasure, it's good pleasure, he takes great pleasure in working out his will in all of its detail and intricacy. You know somebody, my, my one grandfather used to be able to, you know, you go fishing, you get a bird's nest, and I would usually, whoop, okay, new hook, let's go. But he would sit and untie his bird's nest, just rocking back and forth forever, you know. And then whoosh, catch a fish, untie his burden. He was so careful, it just didn't bother him, didn't get him upset. I'm too impatient. Give me some new line, let's go. Back at it. God's like that. He's so careful and he takes pleasure in doing every tiny little detail of his plan. That includes you and you and me. Because we're part of that. He takes pleasure in including you in all that he's planned and willed and purposed. Verse 11. In him, in Christ, that is, we have obtained an inheritance. We sung about that this morning. Thou mine inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
In Christ we have received an inheritance from the Father, since we were destined beforehand by this same deliberate purpose of the Father, who always does things in accordance with his will. This inheritance, we, we have to relate it to adoption. We've already talked about adoption last week, right? Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Sons inherit. Right? Colossians 1.12 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God qualified you. You did not qualify yourself. Because you couldn't. We can't. It's everything we've been talking about, right? God qualified you. And so God says this to us, not only have I made you my son in the son, but I've conferred upon you all of the rights and privileges that go along with that. You're not just my son in theory. I'm not just telling you that to make you feel better. You're my son and everything that that means because you're in my son. You're in Christ. So when I see you, you have all of that. My mind went to Matthew's the parables in the Gospel of Matthew. And follow me along with, uh, if you could, Matthew chapter 13. I just want to look at two little parables that Jesus tells here. And thinking about this idea of inheritance, and even it's so great, it's what we sung this morning, thou mine inheritance. We think about inheritance, we think about, what am I getting, right? Stuff. Yeah? I would argue that's not First and foremost, the kind of inheritance we're talking about here. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What Jesus is trying to say through these parables is the kingdom of heaven is a treasure worth all this because of the king. If you've been paying attention in Focus Hour, the goodness of the kingdom of Judah was only as good as its king. Right? If the king's rotten... The kingdom stinks. I don't want to be a part of that kingdom. It's got a rotten king. The kingdom of heaven is so wonderful because of its king. Being sons of the king is desirable, not so much because this is what I get from the king, but because of the king. I get to be a part of his kingdom because he's a great king. He's a good king. This is a wonderful kingdom. This is similar to sonship, to adoption, and the inheritance that comes from that. Notions of the value and worth of the kingdom come to mind, right? We, we think about the, the worth of the kingdom, this treasure that, that Jesus has here. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. It's not like, wow, this is such a great kingdom. Wow, this is such a great king. I want to be, be where that king is. I want to be his subject. I want to be his servant. And quite frankly, I'm glad to just have him let alone what he gives me. Thou might inheritance. (laughs) 
right? We sung it or sang it, whichever you'd like. All that we get as adopted sons and daughters of the Father through Christ is nothing compared to getting the Father. Yes, we receive grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, all these things that God has given. But when we start mixing up the creation from the Creator, we forget that the Creator is the one that's the real prize, the real treasure. Jesus said, No one comes to the Father except through me. Not just heaven. We get the Father as sons and daughters of the Father. We get Him. He's ours. He's he's your dad. He's my Father. Forever. Our inheritance, which the Father has allotted us as His sons in Christ, is supremely valuable because it's primarily about getting God. He is the treasure. A part in Him is the real inheritance. We're back in our text now. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Which is, which is Him. Which is God. I have Him. He has me. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will. Predestined, as I said, simply destined beforehand. God chose, he predestined, same thing. This was done according to the purpose of the Father. He works all these things according to the counsel of his will. We were predestined to receive this inheritance just as we were predestined to be adopted as his sons. Makes sense, right? I'm predestined to be adopted, I'm predestined to receive the inheritance. That comes along with being his son. The Father destined beforehand that we would share in all of this bought by Christ. He does all of these things according to the counsel of his will. God does not seek any other counsel but his own will. That's a deliberate. Notice, look what it says. According to the counsel of his will. It doesn't say the will of his counsel. That's deliberate, right? Every word in the word is deliberate. According to the counsel of his will. How is the father counseled? How are you counseled? What counsel do you seek when you're trying to make a decision, when you're trying to understand circumstances, when you're trying to know what to do? You seek wise counselors, hopefully godly counselors. Of course, you go to the Lord in prayer. Who does God seek? His own will. We don't do that because that usually ends really badly because our wills are tainted by sin. Think about it. Just test yourself. What do you will? What do you desire? Is it always, all the time, perfect? (laughs) Maybe the question is, is it ever perfect? Good, right? You can even want good things but for wrong motives. The only counsel the Father follows is his own will. Verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Those of us who have first believed on Jesus Christ, our very existence should be to praise the Father's glory. Now I'm going to take, I take kind of a position here that may be different than what you've heard before. 
I don't agree that this is now talking about Jews and Gentiles. And let me tell you why. Some think that verse 12 says that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul, some think that Paul's talking about Jews. He's a Jewish Christian. And then verse 13 begins, in him you also. He starts seeing you. But up to this point, he said nothing about Jews and Gentiles. He does later. But thinking that that's what he's talking about now, there's no indication that that's what he's saying. We who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He says we. He's used we or us ten times before that in verses 3 through 11. And every single time that he's used we or us, he's talking about what he says in verse 1, to whom the letter is written, to the saints who are in Ephesus. In other words, to the Christians. He doesn't say to the Gentile Christians or to the Jewish Christians, because that would be opposite of the gospel, right? Because we know in the gospel, everybody's brought together. I don't give a hill of beads where you come from. We're in Christ. We're the same. We're together. And so I think Paul is simply saying, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of glory. In other words, those who first put their faith in Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile, might be to the praise of his glory. Paul's not making a statement about categories and whatever. He's talking about purpose. He's saying... Those who have put their hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Not praise his glory, but should be. Should Your very existence should exist for the praise of his glory. Those who first hope in Christ. And that's why he switches it, in him you also. You see, Paul's a preacher. You see, there's, there's something we can do when we talk. You can say, we. You know, we're, I said it earlier, we're all sinners, right? And that, that joins me in with you, because that's true. But sometimes... Sometimes from here we have to say you. And that's when you kind of, uh, uh, hmm, okay. Because <laughs> you're being talked to. Paul's a preacher. And then when he turns to you, he's talking to the Ephesians. He's saying, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed. That's what he's doing. Notice he says, hope in Christ. Christ, yes, is our hope. Say it's synonymous with faith. It's the same thing as saying faith. Those who have first put their faith or trusted in Christ. Hope, Christian hope is not like the world's hope. I hope this might happen. I hope this works out. Christian hope is, is, is deliberate, sure assurance. I say, I hope in God. Where's your hope? We might say. We might say, my my sure confidence, it will happen, is in God. Hope has been kind of tarnished by the world a little bit because it might happen. Hope, from God's perspective, is a sure thing. So let me take verses 13 and 14 together here because it's, this is where he gets to talk about the Spirit, and it's important to sort of take them as one big bite. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we inquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. He says in verse 13 there, you have also, when you heard the gospel and you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised 
Holy Spirit. You, he starts to turn to you. Remember, he's reminding the Ephesians. Imagine, the way they would have first heard this is someone would have read the letter to them in public like this. And as the reader is reading it, there's a clear change, right? We've been seeing we and us, we and us, we and us, we and us. And pretty soon, it's you. You also. Because Paul doesn't want you to think just... It's just about, when he uses even the first person, we and us, it's kind of like this idea that we're all together, but then he wants to remind them, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you believed in Christ. There's a sense in which we must know that it's about us, not just we. And even as you come here this morning, and you sing, and you take part, and it feels good perhaps, and it's encouraging, you must, there must be a sense in which, is it you? Because you're only us, if it, that's happened. Right? You must know that. You must settle that. Don't just come and enjoy and be stirred and encouraged. And when you're not anymore, then don't come anymore. You must settle the you. You must settle. Are you in Christ? Have you received him as Lord? You must settle that. And Paul, that's his heart. He wants the Ephesian church to be reminded when you heard. Did you, do you remember when you heard for the first time? And you really heard it? And you said, oh, that's, that's true. It's the word of truth. That's true. That's true about me. I believe that's true about you, Lord. This is good news. I believe when that happened, Paul says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. They just found a, uh, archaeologists just found a, the seal of the prophet Isaiah. See that? When the prophet Isaiah would write a letter, they've already found Hezekiah's seal when he would write a letter king hezekiah but they just found isaiah's seal when isaiah the prophet would write a letter he would take a seal and say run it over the wax and this is from isaiah that's how you know it's from isaiah if you have a marriage license or any other license if it doesn't have that little crimp thing or stamp or whatever it's not legitimate but when it has it it's legitimate you're sealed it's the same thing if I get a letter that says it's from Isaiah and it's not, it's not. Just like when you get emails from Nigerian princes, it's not really from a Nigerian prince. <laughs> I don't care how official it sounds. They don't have your email address. It's only valid if it's sealed. Right? In him... You were sealed. You're valid. Now, it's real. You were sealed. You got it. He's, you're his. He sealed you. And that's, we see four different aspects in verses 13 and 14, four different aspects of the Spirit's work. And that's the first, that you were sealed. Uh, so a few verses here to go through. You can just jot them down. don't have the time to have you turn with me to all of them. 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is in Christ. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's almost exactly what he just says here in Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 1 there. He's put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 4 And verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When the day of redemption comes, when the day arrives, are you bearing that seal? Because if you're not, it's not your day of redemption. That's what it means. The Lord putting his seal on you in and by the Holy Spirit is the means by which he marks those whom he has chose. When you put your faith in Christ, when you believe, when you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, that's the context in our text here. It's hinged on faith. God doesn't do it without that. When you believe in him, then you were sealed. And that Choosing is worked out in our belief in Jesus and our receiving him as Lord. And we're then sealed with the Holy Spirit. God the Father seals us with his Holy Spirit. It's his tangible mark of possession of us by placing his own spirit on us. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, which I would argue is about a lot more about Christ than we might think. says, My beloved is mine and I am his. That's not just nice language about a marriage. That's true about you if you are in Christ. Because he's called the beloved in verse 6 of Ephesians 1. My beloved is mine and I am his. We be- I belong to him and he is mine. He has sealed me. It's official. I have the ring. If you will. The second aspect of the Spirit's work. This seal does something. The seal has another purpose. It's a guarantee, verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 3. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We know that little section there. When we think about someone who has lost someone uh, in the faith, we say that while we're at home in the body, we're we're away from the Lord. But when we're with, out of the body, we're with the Lord. Right? But this courage that Paul says comes comes from the fact that the Father has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Romans 8 and verse 23, Paul says, And not only the creation, that is creation waiting for the day of redemption, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
The first fruits of the Spirit goes in concert with the seal of the Spirit. The seal of the Spirit is a guarantee. If you have it, yes, it's one sense a mark of God's possession on you, but it's also a guarantee. I have been sealed by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. I have this guarantee that I will be redeemed. Now, there's a third aspect. We're jumping around here. But I'm going to go back to verse 13. And it begins there at the beginning of the verse. In him, you also. Third aspect of the Spirit's work is that we're sealed by the Spirit in Christ. Remember, the Spirit's job is to point to Jesus. We can get really excited about the Holy Spirit and talking to the Holy Spirit and praying to the Holy Spirit, being in the Spirit, but the Spirit's job is to point you to Jesus and to His Word. That's what He does. That's what Jesus tells us He does. In John uh, chapter 14, in the discourse there that Jesus is sharing with the disciples, John 14, verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus is speaking here. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's one of the Spirit's jobs, to bring to their remembrance, to bring to your remembrance, to point you to the words of Jesus. Verse, uh, John 16, verse 14, talking about the Spirit. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit's job is to point you to Jesus. When you believed in Christ, you were sealed by the Spirit in Christ. And in the beginning of John's gospel, in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That giving the right to become children of God has to do there with the sealing of the Spirit in Christ, through faith in Christ. So the first aspect of the Spirit's work we see here is that we're sealed by Him, mark of possession from the Father. That seal then, second aspect, is that that seal is a guarantee to us that we will be redeemed, that we will receive this inheritance. Third aspect is that we're sealed by the Spirit in Christ, and the Spirit is pointing us to Christ. The fourth aspect here is in verse 14, or the end of uh, verse 13, excuse me. The promised Holy Spirit, or yours might say the Holy Spirit of promise. The fourth aspect of the Spirit's work is that the Spirit comes as He was promised to. In the same text that Jesus is talking to the disciples in John 14, verses 15 and 17, He says this, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Jesus, yes, promises that the believers in Christ, believers in Him, His disciples, will receive the Spirit. There's one promise, but this promise goes far Greater back than that. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them, which is different in the Old Testament. If you remember our time looking at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. 
Ezekiel, the promise of the Spirit is there in Ezekiel chapter 11. Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. The promise of the Spirit there is in the prophet Joel. On all flesh, everybody, regardless of who they are, and it's not divorced, it's not connect, or, uh, disconnected from faith in Christ. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. All of these four things that the Spirit has done, He sealed us, marking us out as the Father's possession. That seal is a guarantee that we will be redeemed. We are sealed in Christ, so that the Spirit is pointing us to Christ again and again. We were then also uh, shown that God keeps His promises by giving the promised Holy Spirit and sending Him. All of this until we acquire possession of it. There's a sense in which you do have it now. You are a new creation in Christ now. You are in Him now. You are seated with Him in the heavenly places now, if you have faith in Him. But there's a sense in which we will acquire possession of it. We'll have it fully. It will be consummated and complete. And until we acquire possession of it, we have the Spirit as a seal marking us as possessed by the Father, marking us, reminding us of this guarantee that it will happen and it will come, sealing us in Christ, pointing us again and again to the Savior, look, making us look back to the cross, and reminding us that God keeps His promises. Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is that promise living in us. We have the Holy Spirit of God making that true for us. That's not just Paul's wishful, hopeful thinking. I'm sure God's, it'll be all right. That's what we tell each other through things. That's not Paul saying that. He's saying, you have the Spirit. I know this will happen. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ because he has given his Spirit. That's why he can say that. It's not wishful thinking. All of this to the praise of his glory. That's where he ends. It begins this section, this verses 3 through 14 with blessed. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. He ends with to the praise of his glory. Who's his? I'm convinced that it's the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the Godhead. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of this God that we have. The Father who has decreed and uh, authored salvation to happen. The Son who has secured salvation to be wrought by His own blood on the cross. And the Spirit who then takes and applies it upon our faith in Christ. To the praise of His glory. Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verses 20 and 21, God talks about His chosen people, the people whom I formed for Myself, that they might declare My praise. I said last week, we know that we're called to praise God. That's why we have a section in our service when we get together, or other times, perhaps as a family you do this, where you sing. You sing praises to the Lord. You give praise to Him. When we have prayer request time, it's not just about always negative things. Sometimes we have praises to share, don't we? We're to praise the Lord. But we're not to do that simply just because we have to, because he, but because He is praiseworthy. He is glorious. He is worthy of our praise. Right? But God, 
says, I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2, if you would. 1 Peter 2. And this is Peter's way of saying this, same thing. Rather, the spirit in Peter saying the same thing. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter talking to believers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's his purpose. We can sit and, 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 and miss the second part of that and just focus on chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people are for his own possession. We can sit and just and, and, and be really excited about uh, and happy for and thankful for the fact that God has saved us. I'm so glad that God has saved us. And never get to the fact that the purpose is that we may proclaim his excellencies because he's called us out of darkness. We can, we can just personalize it and individualize it so much that we don't kind of really explode with proclamation and praise that the Father has saved us and just bottle it in, which begs the question, what do you really have if you're not proclaiming it and you're not praising him? What is deadening that? What is keeping you? What is holding you back from proclaiming that, from making, it much, making much of it? from living to the praise of his glory. A few things to just land the plane. Do you ever, as a little kid, um, wonder what your parents were doing when they're doing, they're working maybe out, your dad's working out in the garage or your mom's doing this and there's a sense in which you don't don't know what they're doing. What, what, What are you doing? You can't really see it, you don't really understand and sometimes they say, well, this is what I'm doing. They explain it. Maybe you do that as parents or grandparents. This, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1, this is the God the Father sort of bringing us over and showing us what he's doing. This is what I'm doing. This is, this is the, come up here and stand with me. Let me show you how to do the dishes. This is what I'm doing. When you can't see up over the counter, I don't know what you're doing in there. There's a lot of mess and water. What are you doing? This is the Father. This is what I'm doing. This is the Father showing us that. This is what I'm doing. He's shown us that. He's, it's not a mystery anymore. His uniting all things in Christ. We don't have time to go there. I would just encourage you to read Romans 8, particularly verses 18 through 25, and this idea of the fact that the Father is uniting all things in Christ, bringing all things together in Christ. May we not think small about what the gospel does. Yes, the gospel saved you, I pray. It can, if you didn't know that. But the gospel is the means by which God is redeeming all things. He's making all things new. And he will make all things new. And everything will be united in Christ one day. Let's remind ourselves of what we have in Christ. You have righteousness through faith. You're declared righteous. You're not righteous. 
but you're declared righteous through faith. You receive Christ's righteousness through faith. You're free from sin's reign and power. You're free. Sin is not your king. Sin is not your Lord. You don't have to sin. Do you know that? You're free. You're free from death's reign and threat, such that you don't have to be afraid of dying. And death. You have assurance. You have hope. You have life. Yes, you're breathing, I hope. (laughs) But you have life in Christ. You have newness of life. It's new. It's all new. You have every spiritual blessing. God has given you everything in Christ. You've been adopted. You weren't his son or daughter before, but now you are. Once you were not a people, but now you are his people. You've been adopted. You're You can nestle up to the Father on his lap and hear from him and speak to him and and, and rest in him. You have grace. He's lavished his grace upon you. You have an inheritance. Who Who is God himself? And you have a guarantee that when you waver, when you feel tempted, when you feel down, you can come back. There's my assurance. There I can look. When I feel tempted, when I feel down, when I feel confused, when I feel burdened, I have a guarantee. But this hit me uh, last night. I woke up. I couldn't stop thinking about this. And I, I, before I went to bed and then I conked out, I woke up at like 2 in the morning and I jotted this down. Because it just hit me. When you look at verses 3 through 14, God is revealing to us through Paul, through this letter, all of the just depths and wonder of salvation. And it ends unto the praise of his glory. Salvation is a gift most fully enjoyed and most fully experienced in then taking it and giving thanks for it back to God so that it might do its full work. Do you understand what I mean by that? If you don't give praise to the Lord, if you don't live to the praise of His glory, something's off. It's not yet been allowed to do its full work. Your worship and your uh, seeking after the Lord, your desire to be holy in Him, because He's called you to be holy in Him, and His doing that through His Spirit, your, your delight in God, all of that is culminating in the means by which God wants to do something in you. And if you don't finish with, to the praise of His glory, if your life is not lived in such a way that it's to the praise of His glory, you're missing something. There's no room for curmudgeon grumpy Christians. That's not exi- that shouldn't even exist. There's, not, there's, there's no place for that. And there's no place that this is to say that, that well, that, yeah, that's great. I'm saved. Whoop-de-doo. This should lead us to so much praise because we don't deserve this. But God has given it to us. He has lavished us with grace. Our lives should be an overflow of praise to his glory. Because we are dependent people, we are undeserving people, and God is gracious and merciful and righteous and holy, and he has given us such a gift that why can we not, how can we not live to the praise of his glory? 
How could we not allow all that to be culminated in us so that it wells up? Yesterday, I was just, I was struggling through, and I was doing the dishes, struggling through thinking about just some things with the text and whatever. And I, 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 I turned on a sermon just to listen to and different text so I wouldn't get confused in my head. And I just felt like the Lord was telling me, encouraged me through his word, delight yourself in me, Nick. Delight yourself in me. If anything else comes out of this series for me, it's that. Delight yourself in me, Nick. That's how I can remind you that I'm your father and that you're in me through my son. Delight yourself in me. What do you delight in? Salvation is a wonderful gift the Lord has given us. May we live to the praise of his glory. Because he's worth it.